National Center for Victims of Crime would like to thank the MacArthur Foundation for their generous support and making today's podcast possible. And just as a reminder, we would like to thank the John and Catherine MacArthur Foundation for making today's podcast possible. Hello, my name is Renee Williams, and I'm the Executive Director for the National Center for Victims of Crime. Thank you so much for joining us at this special look on resources for victims of police abuse and harassment. In 2020 especially, we've seen a proliferation of incidents of police brutality. This brought a much sharper national focus on police abuse and police harassment. Individuals who are subject to police abuse often do not view themselves as victims of crime or they are too terrified, and rightfully so, to seek help through law enforcement. Therefore, often, they do not seek out or receive appropriate victim services. Those who do seek victim services often find themselves with less resources and access to justice than other crime victims, and often victim compensation is not available due to a multitude of reasons, including police departments not providing victims with information regarding resources, and charges not filed against the police officers themselves. We're here today to examine the types of resources that do exist and what others are needed. Joining us today are very four special guests and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves quickly, starting with Carrie Watson. Oh, good, good afternoon, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, my name is Carrie Watson. I am currently the Regional Vice President for Government Affairs for MGM Resorts International, and importantly, in a National Center for the Victims of Crime board member. Uh, but I think I've been invited here uh, because of my previous career which was as a 20-year police officer with the Prince George's County Police Department. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie. We also have joining us Mark Bullman. Good afternoon. Thanks so very much for asking me to join you all. Uh, my name is Mark Bullman. I'm an attorney now. I specialize in the defense of civil rights matters for plaintiffs for uh, pursuing uh, particular claims uh, associated with those rights. And I also uh, was a police officer uh, here in the state of Georgia. Thanks, Mark. And also Michael Tobin. Yes, and thank you for inviting me also. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm the executive director of the Office of Police Complaints in our nation's capital. Uh, we are an independent government agency that investigates and resolves police misconduct in the Metropolitan Police Department of Washington, D.C. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And last but certainly not least, Jermaine Muhammad. Yes, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. I'm a local business owner in the city of Atlanta and also uh, activist and advocate of civil rights. Thanks, Jermaine. And Thank you all for joining us again. Jermaine, I want to start with you and ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your story. Yes, hi. Well, as I mentioned, I'm a business owner here in the city of Atlanta, a barber shop. I've operated my shop for over 20 years in a small municipality called Dunwoody. And I had an incident that occurred in the year of 2013 with the local police. And this incident occurred um, in the afternoon when I was leaving work 
So as I'm leaving the parking lot where my shop is located, a police officer cruiser goes by. And once it goes by, I pull out into traffic. And at that point, I'm at the red light sitting behind the police cruiser. Once, once I pass through the light, he's trailing me and eventually hits his lights. Now I'm wondering, you know, what, what is the, you know, the concern, what is the problem? And so once he has me pulled over, he approaches my window and he tells me the reason he pulled me over was for a cracked windshield. This is the reason that he pulls me over. And so he, he immediately goes into questioning me about weapons and drugs. He, you know, runs off some bogus, you know, numbers of the number of officers that have been shot and killed in the area. At the end of it, he, he asks, do you mind if I search a vehicle? And I immediately tell him, yes, I do mind. And so he responds, why do you mind if you don't have anything? And so I informed him because you pulled me over for a cracked windshield. So, you know, write me the citation, allow me to be on my way. He tells me to, to, to sit and he radios in for backup and for a canine unit to come out. Maybe 15, 20 minutes later, they show up with the canine. The canine officer comes to my window. He again, you know, is asking me questions and so he brings the canine out, they do a perimeter sweep, maybe 15, 10 minutes later, the officer that stopped me, he comes back to my window and he's, he says, you know, step out of the vehicle. He walks me back to the back of the vehicle. And then again, the canine officer is asking me as if to get one last opportunity to make a final confession of some sort. You know, he's still asking me, is there anything in the trunk that we need to know about? And I told him there's nothing in there. And, you know, when I had him at the window, I was telling him that this was a waste of time. I have a barbershop, you know, that's 300 yards away. I just, you know, just came out, you know, to go get supplies. And so, and they rummage through the, the trunk with the, the canine and go through the interior of the vehicle. And they come up with absolutely nothing. And they conclude the search with the discovery of an empty can of cashews. And they try to make it as if this is what the dog was responding to. Now, mind you, we have audio of the officer saying to his colleague that the dog reacted like there was five pounds in the car. That's very dangerous in law enforcement. That's, there's a very thin line you know, where that can be easily crossed, where an officer has the, the ability to, to make a case appear a certain way. And so that, that's, a, that's something that's very dangerous. And that is why there's so much frustration and anger, you know, towards law enforcement in, in, in a case like this, you know, which is very minor, you know, but people have lost their lives because of mistakes and judgments and error. Though, you know, this is, this is a small thing considering, you know, how much bigger it can be. You know, certainly it's still something that needs to be addressed. Thank you, Jermaine. And I, I think you said something crucial. 
to today's conversation that we're going to ask you and Mark to unpack in a second, but I want to put a flag in it now. You mentioned that you were able to listen to the audio of the police officer, and, and that's how you really unpacked a lot of your case. And I think it's important for everyone listening to know that not everybody gets to hear that audio, that, that not everybody has that opportunity, and, and you had to get it through a specific process, um, and that's one of the resources that we're here to talk about. Your story, Jermaine, has so many parallels to our next guest, Carrie Watson, and, and I want to get both of those stories out on the table first, so I'm going to turn it over to Carrie to ask him tell his story. Thank you, Renee. I am from a place called Prince George's County, Maryland, which is right outside of the District of Columbia, and it is a majority minority community. Um, it's my experience happened several decades ago even uh, when I was in, around the ages of 19 or 20. I was attending the University of Maryland and it was right around the time of the Rodney King videos and the, and the riots and all the angst that was going on in the country in terms of what maybe well, a lot of people would consider the first really public um, impression or, or video of police brutality that the public got to consume. So there was, there was a, a relatively a fair amount of tension going on at the time. Uh, I was leaving a party at the University of Maryland on one Saturday night and uh, my car had been broken into and they broke out the rear vent window to steal a, a coat. And being a college student working paying for school. I could not afford at the time to get the window fixed. So I just drove around with it like that for, for a period of time. Uh, several days later, a really good friend of mine and I were driving down the Capitol Beltway, I-95, and a Prince George's County police officer pulled behind me. And I'd never had any confrontations with the police up to this point. So I was a little bit uncomfortable with the officer following me. And then you know, I noticed the second and the third and even the fourth and fifth officer joined this kind of, not even a pursuit because I wasn't running. The officer pulled me over, pulled me over to the slow shoulder of the beltway. And uh, you know, in a moment's time, all of them came out of the cars, guns drawn. I uh, had my windows down, my hands on the steering wheel as, as I know I was supposed to do. And one of the officers came in and put a gun to my head, demanding to know whose car it was. Uh, you know, it was my car, obviously. And I continued to tell him, sir, this is my car, please, sir. I didn't do anything, this is my car. And, you know, they were aggressive in trying to figure out whose car it was. And eventually they pulled me out of the car, set us both on the side of the road while they conducted a thorough search of the car, including the trunk, everything. And as I told them, you know, I'm the victim here. I was, my car was broken into. I just haven't gotten the window fixed, please. After they found nothing because there was nothing to be found, no guns, no drugs. Again, as I mentioned before, I wasn't that kid. They just kind of sent me on my way. And for me at the time, you know, that left a very bad impression with me. It was, uh, it was something I was very upset and angry about. And, you know, as someone up until that point that really didn't have an opinion one way or another, it certainly solidified what I thought about the police and how they treated particularly young black men in our society. So thank you for sharing that. Again, like so many stories we're hearing, the, the parallels here are clear in that 
there was a cracked rear window of cars that you both owned that led to a stop, which led to much worse that, that didn't need to happen. But what you both went through and how you reacted um, in the long run was very differently, and certainly the services you were able to receive were very different. Carrie, you were a victim really twice, first of a break-in and then of police harassment, but did you, did you view yourself as a victim at that time? It's interesting because you know, at the time, obviously, I thought I was a victim. I lost my favorite, my favorite coat was stolen from me. Um, but in terms of how I was treated by the police at that time, victim is not the term that I would have used. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear it presented that way. Um, and upon further reflection on the, the incident, yeah, I guess I could say I was a victim. You know, I certainly didn't earn the treatment that I felt. And, you know, it, it should have been a different outcome. So I, I guess in a sense, uh, that term could be used. And, and you later became a police officer. Um, was this incident an impetus for that? Uh, and, and how was that transition? My best friend at the time was interested in becoming a Prince George's County police officer. And I discouraged him. I told him that, uh, you know, I didn't know why he would want to join an organization like that, why he'd want to be the police just didn't make any sense to me. And he went through the process and got through the academy and started working the streets and would come back and tell me about how much he enjoyed the job. Now, I, I knew this guy. I mean, he was, again, my best friend. And I know that he wasn't the type to treat people wrong. So I gave it a chance. I, he asked me to go on a ride along with him so I could have another impression of what the job was. And I have to tell you, I went on that ride long and I fell in love with it. And I literally dropped everything. Um, I left school after my third year, joined the Prince, uh, applied and joined the Prince George County Police Department with a, with a plan, with a goal of building bridges. I wanted to see the relationship between the public and the police department change. And being a kid from that community and working within the community that, that I was raised, I felt like I could really have a positive impact. Um, my experience was not as bright and rosy as it as I had hoped, and you know it was challenging on on many fronts. But you know I hope that some people saw me that way over my career, and you know unfortunately I'm sure some people didn't. And that's something that I have to personally reconcile, uh, even today. Thanks, Carrie. Jermaine, hearing Carrie's story, you obviously went in a different path. Um, so I want to talk about your story a little bit more. What did you want after that incident? What did you want to happen? What, what would have been a good resolution for you? You know, once I realized the motive behind the stop and the amount of time that it took and how my day was interrupted, I really took it very personally. And I, I felt like this is this, this new department coming into my neighborhood. I've serviced a lot of people. Many of the people from the area have come to my barbershop. I just, I took it very personally when that happened. What I, what I really wanted to see, I, it, was, it was a sense of, of retaliation. And that, that was my, my motive because I knew that they were out of line. 
And so therefore, my, my desire was to bring them this, the same public shame that they brought me in that, in that one hour. I just wanted to send a clear message that this was not going to be something that I was just going to lay down on. And, I, and then I felt compelled to, to do something because later on in talking with, with clients, you know, I realized that they too have their own personal stories of run-ins with law enforcement, of how they were taken advantage of. But a lot of times that's where it ends. It's, it's just a conversation that happens inside the barbershop. I think that it was, it was necessary, especially because I have clients, I have customers, people in the area that know me in order for me to, to send a message and then to do it the right way. I do have a background in public access television. I've, I've been doing that for, you know, over 15, 20 years. So I understood how news coverage works. I understood, you know, how, how to get a message out and how to broadcast. I reached out to a local uh, anchor woman within an hour, she emails me back and she said, well, we're gonna you know, forward this over to the content producer over at Channel 2. And that got the ball rolling as far as getting in contact with the media. And I didn't have an attorney at that time, but I just wanted to make some noise. I just wanted to bring it to the attention of the public. And then you know, later on, eventually I was able to obtain the representation of, of Mark Bullman, you know, it, it worked out, but it was just having enough faith to kind of step out and say, this is, this is not right. And I want you to understand the impropriety of what you've done and to understand that, no, you cannot profile all of us the same way. And these are the results that you'll get when you try to police in that fashion. So Jermaine, just so I understand, and I just want to back up a little, I love the idea of going public quickly and, and reaching out to media contacts and that you were savvy enough, frankly, to do that. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of people aren't. Um, did you consider any other remedies? Did you view yourself as a victim of a crime in any way where, where you would reach out for victim resources? And were you aware of any that existed? Not at all. I yeah, I don't think that's the first thing that comes to mind when I look at going through police harassment. I, I never would have you know, used that particular term. A lot of times it's very hard to find an advocate for the black man in America that has been vilified for for, for centuries and continuously, you know, that particular image is fed through media. It becomes it becomes almost an, an attitude of, of apathy, you know, towards any type of injustice that happens to black men. And until we we've been able to capture video of the the horrendous acts that have been committed, you know, as early as Rodney King, that that was that was, you know, horrific enough, but even still, we've we've captured you know shootings of people on video, and but yet, you know, still it goes on. You know, I, I wouldn't say that I I felt like I was a victim, but certainly you know a victim of police har harassment. But it, it's 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 something that is so it, it occurs so often, and it, and it's like you don't 
really feel like you have a position. You, it's something that you just submit to, unfortunately. In most cases, that's, that's what happens. And you think this is the norm, you know? But until, you know, you get fed up or you feel like, look, I have just as much of a right to have the freedom to move about and, and to not be harassed. So I'm going to fight for those rights because the only thing we have is our life. And what type of life is it to live in under tyranny, in, in fear? Yeah, that, I mean, so that, those are the things that I contemplated. And I said, well, let's, let's just make something happen. And I think that's a great segue because you were able to use use that savvy and, and really use that drive within you um, to find Mark Bullman, who you mentioned, who is on the call with us. Um, and so I'm going to turn it over to Mark. Mark, you've handled a lot of these cases. Can you walk us through how a civil lawsuit against either an individual police officer or a full police department works? Thanks very much. Uh, in listening, uh, to both uh, Carrie and Jermaine. Something that reflected uh, with me is uh, Carrie's story about how he went through this process and ended up becoming a passionate law enforcement officer uh, and having a different perspective. Uh, my life was the exact opposite of Carrie's. I actually uh, had been a police officer. Uh, I know from experience that the huge majority of law enforcement officers are good, hardworking people that care very much about their communities. After I got out of being a, in law enforcement as a career and went to law school, I was contacted. I, I didn't start off necessarily with the idea that this is an area of practice uh, that I would be involved in. Instead, someone contacted me, a fellow law enforcement officer that knew me because they had heard of a very bad situation in a metro uh, Atlanta community where things were going on and asked if I would help these people. And at first I was hesitant for a number of reasons. My predisposition was to believe that because of my experience with law enforcement, that they were good people uh, and that the things that I was told really, I found it shocking. I looked into it, volunteered to get involved and the next thing you know, uh, I'm practicing in this area uh, all the time. That when I heard of these kind of incidents, it infuriated me uh, and created a different type of passion. The, uh, the circumstance that Jermaine had, he called and shared with me and uh, I was again infuriated and it struck a chord with me. And I spoke with Jermaine and he explained what happened. And I knew that this was a situation where we needed to do something. The problem is when it comes to resources that people like Jermaine or Carrie and so many others experience, they feel, whether they admit it or not, I think to an extent, they, they feel somewhat helpless because you're dealing with a government, you're dealing with people with authority, you're dealing with people with unlimited resources. And so the difficulty in knowing the steps to take can be daunting. And as a result, uh, a lot of people don't get the assistance uh, that they need, whether that be simply to know more about what happened, to file a complaint, uh, to know how to, how to maneuver through this process, and if necessary, in filing a suit to get more information. One of the difficulties is, uh, unlike many other cases uh, that attorneys deal with, 
there's an issue with evidence, uh, as as Jermaine said. You know, there was camera video, there was video and audio that was available. Uh, there were some difficulty uh, in his case in obtaining that as, as as well. But when you have the the powerful people that are in charge of that evidence, it's very difficult for an ordinary person to know how to go about getting that information, and the difficulties that come along with the legal remedies that are available for somebody when a government is involved. And Mark, I think you hit on an important point um, and bringing it back to Jermaine's story that you all were able to get the audio. That doesn't often happen outside of a civil lawsuit. And, and I want to examine not only what can happen throughout a civil lawsuit, but besides monetary damages, what else can, can victims seek um, within a civil lawsuit? Again, that's not monetary, but, but might provide some kind of remedy. Well, to touch the first part uh, of, of your remark is, uh, you know, getting the video and knowing how to go about getting any other evidence, uh, dash cam video, body cam video, audio recordings uh, through the police communication system, text messages, instant messages and stuff with the onboard computer systems that most departments have now. Uh, it can be a difficult process made worse by the fact, as in the case with Jermaine, they were trying to cover up the misconduct. And then as a former police officer hearing and seeing what was happening, it triggered something in me, that little spidey sense that said something's, there's more to it than this, and required me to dig an awful lot harder to get more information, which in fact led us to find out that Jermaine was by no means the only person who had been put in this position by this exact same officer and almost exclusively uh, people of color, uh, both uh, people from the Latino community as well as the African-American community, uh, which led us to do an awful lot more. As far as what kind of relief is obtainable, it's obviously limited in the context of the civil uh, realm, civil litigation. Obviously, as a private attorney or as a private citizen who has suffered a harm like this, you can insist that criminal charges be brought for many reasons. Uh, that's up to the prosecutors and the police. Um, and it's very difficult to get uh, other authorities interested in pursuing law enforcement for things like this. So with the exception of the possibility of recovering financial re uh, remuneration, uh, it's, we're limited. Um, there is the possibility, uh, generally found in the federal court system, to seek injunctions to prevent people from continuing a pattern of bad conduct. One of the other things that can be done, obviously, if the case doesn't go to court, you can do just about anything. I mean, if there's a settlement that's reached, in the case of Jermaine, uh, the other department that he mentioned that allowed their canine to be used by this officer that had stopped Jermaine, realized after we had the opportunity to speak with them, the process they were involved in was not proper. It was not lawful and it violated people's constitutional rights. Their response versus the police department that uh, was, that actually stopped Jermaine, their response could not be more, more different, uh, could, could not be more disparate. The folks in the department with canine realized it was wrong and actually asked for my assistance to help them rewrite their policy, their standard operating procedure because their desire was to ensure that that kind of behavior did not continue. One of the most difficult things to tell most clients is that no matter how far you take a case, the chances 
of actually getting an apology uh, are extraordinarily slim. Now, Mark brings up a crucial point first, that not everything can be addressed in a civil lawsuit. And, and more importantly, and I will say it because he will not say it to brag about himself, but there are not a lot of Mark Bullmans out there. It's hard to find a civil attorney who's willing to take on this kind of case. And I think that's where we've developed resources. Um, there's still not enough, but that is where our next guest comes in, Michael Tobin. So Michael, can you explain really what you do? What What is the Office of Complete? police complaints? What kind of cases do you see? What what remedies do you all provide? Sure, thank you. Uh, you know, in many respects, we can be described as a victim resource. Uh, the DC Office of Police Complaints uh, is a independent government agency in our nation's capital. And our mission is to investigate police misconduct and resolve those cases. And help the Metropolitan Police Department with their policies and training and procedures to do all those things in a constitutional manner. So we allow ourselves to be a victim resource in many respects by having people like Carrie and Jermaine, uh, giving them the ability to file a complaint with our office. Uh, and when that happens, uh, we have complete jurisdiction over investigating that complaint. We'll get all the police reports. Uh, we'll look at the body worn camera footage if there is any. Uh, we'll freeze and uh, 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 freeze any body worn camera footage immediately uh, for the investigation. We'll look at any court reports. We'll go to the scene, investigate any witnesses, do a witness canvas, look for any closed circuit camera footage. Uh, subpoena any additional documents or any other witnesses that we might need. And basically we do everything that a regular police department internal affairs unit would do, except we are in no way connected with the police department. Uh, we are completely separate from them. I have a staff of about 25 people. Almost all of them are very well-trained and experienced investigators and they do a great job of investigating over 800 incidents of complete of uh, complaints uh, in Washington, D.C. alone. Uh, and if people feel that they are wronged, uh, they can file a complaint and get hold of us on the telephone or over the computer. They can file a com complaint right over the computer or right over their phone if they want. Or they can go to any police district station or they can go to any uh, one of 20 plus community partner agencies we have spread throughout the area if they don't feel comfortable doing any of those other things. Uh, so we try to make it as easy as possible for, uh, for people like Carrie and Jermaine uh, to file a complaint so that we can investigate it. And when we do investigate it, if we find that there was misconduct and that there was a rule violation, uh, then we send that case to the police chief and the police chief must then issue discipline uh, for that uh, for that incident and to that officer. There are also some other avenues that we offer to people of, that are victims of police misconduct. And that is, a, uh, one of them is mediation. We have a really strong mediation case here in Washington, uh, uh, program here in Washington. Uh, right now we send about one out of every 10 complaints that we receive go through our mediation program through an independent uh, mediator that sits down in person or right now doing uh, virtual virtual meetings 
uh, with the officer and with the complainant one-on-one -on -one to talk about what happened and try to resolve what happened. You know, a lot of times people uh, that we see come into our office just want to be heard. They want to tell their story and they want to, the officer to know how they felt and how they felt that they were treated in that particular situation. And we offer them that opportunity as a victim of police misconduct to sit down with the officer outside of the street environment to try to equalize the playing field more or less. Uh, and the vast majority of our mediations are successful and people are, are pleased with uh, the result. And then, uh, then we close the case if there's mediation and, and it's successful. And we're also finding too, and we've been doing this for a number of years, that it really helps the officer. For that officer to understand the complainant and the community member from their perspective outside of the street environment where the, the, the playing field is leveled, so to speak, uh, it's helped a lot of officers understand uh, how they can improve their behavior and do it uh, a little bit better uh, the next time. We also uh, have another resolution uh, that, that probably is uh, unique to the district district and that is that if we do find misconduct or typically in a minor misconduct case, if we find that an officer would benefit from training, uh, we'll refer the officer back to the police academy for additional training in whatever aspect it might mean. It might, typically it might be language and conduct, uh, how to deal on an interpersonal level with someone at a traffic stop, uh, understanding how certain laws or regulations should be enforced or should not be enforced. So there's a particular matter that the officer just needs more training on. We'll, we have the authority just to send that officer back to the academy and uh, then he or she must attend the additional training uh, successfully as, a, as another uh, type of disposition. So those are the things we try to do to help victims of police misconduct. It's not uh, the do-all, end-all. It's not the best system. I think it's, uh, we can stand improvements just like everywhere else, but it does offer uh, some degree of resources that victims may not have in other uh, other places and other jurisdictions. Uh, so we are fortunate to have uh, that, at least here in the District of Columbia. Michael, I wanna go back. I like what you were talking about with the mediation program. I think with all victims of crime, that's one of the biggest desires that we see come out is the, and that's oftentimes what we view justice as, is the ability to tell your story and to face really your perpetrator or the person who has harmed you. Besides the mediation, do you offer, and I apologize if you covered this and I missed it, but I think one of the important things also when we offer victim services is offering victims um, places where they can go to, to express themselves to seek mental health. Do you also offer those or do you try to provide resources as to that or does this look more at the officer's behavior? We work on a regular basis with other DC government agencies that offer those services and make regular referrals. Uh, examples would be mental health professionals, social workers. We have a strong uh, uh, homelessness program and multiple resources that we can uh, refer people to through those uh, services also. So wherever we can help a complainant, uh, we will try to do that and refer them to the correct uh, uh, agency, uh, and we and we do that a lot. Uh, we also try to. Uh, one thing I haven't mentioned too is 
if there was criminal conduct involved, we will also investigate a criminal case and refer it uh, to the U.S. Attorney's Office for criminal prosecution. And in, in the District of Columbia, the criminal prosecutor is the U.S. Attorney's Office. We don't have a local prosecution office that's elected. So uh, we'll make referrals on, on criminal cases or administrative misconduct cases. Uh, probably our, our several most frequent types of cases are uh, not unlike what Carrie and Jermaine both uh, described in their uh, incidents involved. We've investigated that type of incident uh, far too many times in the District of Columbia. We also investigate use of force complaints and frequently uh, harassment type of complaints and language and conduct uh, complaints where officers just did a, a poor job of handling uh, this, the situation for whatever uh, reason. Uh, there's been a movement uh, nationwide to look at expanding the types of things that we do, not just in the district, but other uh, cities. There are probably almost 200 cities in the United States that have oversight agencies uh, similar to what we do in the District of Columbia. They are all uh, have a different, they all have different versions of what their jurisdiction is, what their authority is. Uh, and how much they can do, but certainly over the past uh, several months and a year, actually, uh, there has been a great deal of interest in expanding uh, civilian oversight over the police, uh, and not just for, to expand victim resources, but just also to improve uh, police practices uh, in general. And that's what we're doing in the district, and that's what we're seeing nationwide and in many other uh, cities in America. Thank you, Michael. I think these are tremendous resources. Jermaine, listening to all of this and, and, and kind of taking everything in, were there services you wished you had received? Um, do you think any, any of these services that we've discussed would have helped you more? Yeah, absolutely. Knowing that there's a, an organization dedicated to investigating and, and looking and probing deeper into cases um, I would have, I would have been very happy to to have had that resource at the time. And Carrie, I'm going to ask you what might be a little bit of an uncomfortable question, and I think you touched on it earlier. But but did your view of police harassment change after you became an officer? You know, obviously, uh, having experienced both sides of that gun. You know, I also recognize the dangers that exist with being a law enforcement officer, and I better understand the reasons that officers make the decisions they make. Now, that doesn't in any way excuse bad behavior and unnecessary uses of force. Uh, those are still issues that need to be dealt with up front. But I am really interested and excited about programs like the ones that uh, Michael discussed and think back to my personal experience and how beneficial it might have been to have an opportunity to sit in front of that officer and ask him why he put his gun to my head. But, you know, I don't ever want to lose sight that officers who are out there and the, on the job most of the time are doing the very best they can and they make mistakes. Now, when they make mistakes, yes, those mistakes should be addressed. And when there's uh, learning opportunities, those should be provided to them. Um, but, you know, it is, it is a different view, but it doesn't make harassment like we've discussed 
excusable. All right, and I think our last question is for Mark. Do you think that, that as the provision of appropriate services becomes a norm in the country, will that impact the suits that are filed for police brutality? And I'm asking you this on multiple levels, both as a former officer and now an attorney who represents victims of police harassment. How, how do you think this will change things? First of all, I'd love to be put out of business in doing these type of cases, uh, whether it's a result of a combination of programs like Michael is in charge of that addresses a huge number of the issues we've discussed, whether or not it's as a result of proper training and weeding out of bad officers that these claims become fewer and fewer. It would be wonderful. Uh, that said, uh, as, as I was excited listening to the resources uh, that Michael uh, helps uh, to, to deliver to people. Thank you, Mark. Unfortunately, I believe that is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank again, Jermaine, Carrie, Mark, and Michael for joining us and sharing their stories and providing their thoughts and these resources on this incredibly important topic. And thank you all for joining us. If you have any questions or would like further information on any of the topics we discussed today, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. And thank you again for joining us.